I love Christmas. Haters gonna hate. I know it's less of a thing with each passing year, but I love it. As a dad, I love to give to my three children. And every Christmas, I give, and this is honestly more for me than for my children, but I give Star Wars Legos. Even to my daughter, who doesn't really care, but hey, just, I'm all for it, right? Gender neutrality, right there. And, um, I mean, just think about that. Star Wars and Legos, together. It's like two of the best things in the universe in the same place. It's fantastic. This last Christmas, I went in with my parents and my little brother in the back, and we gave Moses, my 10-year-old boy, the Millennium Falcon, which is like, that's an expensive set, right? And not the one that's been around for years, the new one from the Lando Calrissian era when it was white and blue before it was all beat up in the Kessel Run. Just beautiful. <laughs> and he was over the moon. He is still, a month later, literally sleeping with it next to his bed. But, you know, we all know there's a dark underbelly to Christmas, and that is the way it's been capitalized on, literally, as in capitalism, by the kind of rampant materialism of our society. And I watch this dynamic unfold every single Christmas, where I buy a Star Wars Lego set for one of my kids or all of my kids, and then they start to put it together, and it comes with a direction packet. Anybody remember this from your day back in the 80s for me or 90s for you? And this was a massive set, right? So this was hours of work. I think in this case it was days. And I watched my children just get lost in like creativity and fun and imagination and storytelling. And then they get it. How many of you played Legos as a kid? Yeah, you remember this. All right, so this is just a little sociology for you. Then you get to the end, and the, the second to last page is the set all put together, right? And it's like, that's where you have your dang moment if you lost something. But this is, this is like, all right, it's all. But this is not the end of the workbook or whatever this is. There's one more page. And on it is, wow, look at that. Advertisements for all the other new Star Wars Lego sets that you don't have. Hint, hint, lego.com at the bottom. And I watch this unfold every year, and I sit my kids down, and now they roll their eyes at me, and I say, all right, children, let's have a talk. This is what behavioral economists call a nudge. <laughs> this is an attempt from an advertising department somewhere in Denmark to monetize your human depravity. <laughs> and the thing is, my children all nod and agree and know it, but they still fall for it every single time. Literally within five minutes of finishing his set, Moses came up to me and said, quote, Dad, are there any jobs I could do that would pay money so I could buy another set, end quote. <laughs> so it's like after my little mini lecture, right? This is really bad when you have like a moralistic type one preacher for a dad. Just pray for my children, all right? My point is that from a very young age, we are enculturated, or in the language of our tradition, we are spiritually formed into the kind, we're in this culture that does everything it can to index our heart toward more. And this is just a zero-sum game. Because instead of, this is so simple, but instead of living in the joy and delight of what we have, we end up stuck 
and the angst and the discontent and the greed and the lust for more that we do not yet have? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to index our heart back toward the gratitude, the contentment, the delight, the joy and peace of the way of Jesus. Of course, it is the Sabbath. Now, we're three weeks into our practice. If you were not here the last few weeks, go back, listen to the podcast. We left off last week with this idea of Sabbath as rhythm, that in the Genesis story, the first story about the Sabbath, God worked for six days, and then he rested for one, or he Sabbath. And in doing so, he built a rhythm into the fabric of creation. But the rhythm of Western culture, as we all know, if there is a rhythm, it's very different. It's a little bit more like this for many of us. Work more, buy more, repeat. So today, I want to talk to you about Sabbath not as rhythm, but Sabbath as resistance. To begin, let's reread Exodus chapter 20, where we left off last week. Ten commandments. Take a look at number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, not you, we'll talk about this today, not your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner or immigrant residing in your towns. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Now, notice, we left this out last time, but that the command is actually twofold. It's for six days you shall work, and the seventh is a day of rest. Now, of course, most of us need to hear the second half of that command about rest. Some of us actually need to hear the first half of that command about work, especially in our city where many young people at least used to go to retire before rent was what it is now. Um, but in this city where hedonism is the norm, where there's almost a veneration of like the Portland version of laziness, this is healthy to hear that there is a rhythm of both work and rest, that work is a good thing. That's a whole second half of this conversation that we don't have time for. But if your life is all work, then over time you grind your soul into the ground and you become more machine than human being. On the flip side, rest is wonderful, case in point, our current practice. But if your life is all rest, and that is a problem, whether it's due to hedonism or retirement, which is an interesting, just been thinking about that a lot today. Some good friends of mine who are practicing Sabbath now in retirement and the dynamic of that. And the intro, we're one of the only cultures in the history of humanity that has a place for retirement, which is basically once you have enough money, you don't need to work anymore because you can do the by part without it. Interesting framework. Rest is good, but if your life is all rest, then it becomes empty of meaning and significance. My point is that both overwork and underwork rob us of the capacity to live as God intended. For that, we need to tap into this rhythm of work for six, Sabbath for one. Now, stay with me. I want to show you something really Bible nerd and fun. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5 to the right. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, if you're new to the library of Scripture, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are called the Torah, which is a Hebrew word, normally translated law. A, more, a better translation is teaching. But the five books, or the Torah, tell a story that takes place over decades. There are 40 years between the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, and they are written, and this is very important, to two different generations. 
Exodus was written to mom and dad fresh out of slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy was written four decades later to mom and dad's children who had no felt experience of slavery, who grew up in freedom. That's very important. Remember that for later. Now, Deuteronomy is from two Greek words, deutero meaning second and namos meaning law. Deuteronomy literally means the second law or the second Torah. And that's because it's, again, written to the next generation 40 years later. The first Torah, so to speak, the first Ten Commandments are written on the top of Mount Sinai out in the wilderness. The second one that we're about to read is written four decades later, that generation's children, not at Mount Sinai, but actually on the edge of the Jordan River, right about to step into Canaan. So in Deuteronomy, Moses calls together generation number two, all the children of mom and dad, and he retells the Torah, or at least the salient points of the Torah. Here in chapter five, he retells the Ten Commandments. Just read with me the Sabbath command. Take a look at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, not you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that Yahweh your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, did you catch that? Is it the same? No, it's different. It's been changed. There are two changes to the Sabbath command in Deuteronomy. First, notice that the first word is changed from remember the Sabbath to what? Observe the Sabbath. In Hebrew, the word is shamar, and it means to keep, to watch over, to guard. It's the word used in Genesis 2 when Adam is put into the garden to shamar it, to watch over, to perfect this idea of environmentalism in our mind. And here it's translated observe, which is a great translation. Merriam-Webster defines observe as, quote, to celebrate something such as a ceremony or a festival in a customary or accepted way. Think of how we observe a holiday, or the roots of that word are a holy day, such as Christmas or Easter or May the 4th. It's the same idea. You observe, you celebrate the Sabbath. The Sabbath is like a weekly holiday or a weekly holy day. Observe also has this idea of obedience. We observe the speed limit in theory, right? At least. We observe the law like you actually come under this law or this teaching. In the Kiddush, which is the ancient Hebrew liturgy that you begin the Sabbath with, the, um, that word Kiddush just means to sanctify or to make holy. It's how you make holy the Sabbath. In it, in the ceremony, the mother, and we do this in our house, the mother lights the two candles and then asks the children, what did the candles symbolize? And the children say, remember and observe. Two candles for the two commands in the Torah. We do this at our house, and it was really cool when the kids were little, and now it's like, roll the eyes, remember and observe, Mom. I'm 13. I get it, okay? But it's a beautiful way to remember and to observe. Now, that's change one. 
Other than that, the command is verbatim until you get to the end, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do, or that can be translated just like you, and then it's remember that you were slaves in Egypt and Yahweh your God brought you out of there. Now, just think about that. In Exodus, it's, for in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea, everything in them, and on the seventh, he rested, he blessed it, and he made it holy. But here in Deuteronomy, it's very different. It's remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Same command, different reason behind it. In Exodus, the rationale behind the Sabbath command is grounded in the story of creation. For six days you shall work. Here in Deuteronomy, it's grounded in the story of the Exodus. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. At Sinai, Sabbath is about rhythm. In Deuteronomy, it's about resistance. At Sinai, it's an invitation to delight in God, in his world, and in your life in it. In Deuteronomy, it is a warning, and a stark one at that, to never go back to Egypt. At Sinai, the Sabbath is this life-giving art form that you tap into for soul health and for that of our society at large. In Deuteronomy, it is a punk rock street protest against Pharaoh and his empire. Now, a little bit of background for those of us that did not grow up in the ancient Near East in slavery. In the story of the Exodus, there's all sorts of language about restlessness. For example, from the book of Exodus. Next slide. Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Quote, you are stopping them from working. Quote, make the people work harder so that they keep working. Quote, make... I don't know what that is. Quote, Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. By the way, this is just from one paragraph in the story. In the story, if you know it, Pharaoh is just this brutal, implacable, ruthless tyrant no matter how hard the Hebrews worked, it was never enough. They just lived under this oppressive yoke of the daily quota, more, more, more. And it wasn't just Pharaoh, it was Egypt as a whole, the socioeconomic system. Israel was making, if you know the story, bricks to build, quote, supply cities, entire cities just to store all of Pharaoh and his rich oligarchy friends' extra stuff. Egypt's appetite for more was insatiable. There was never enough, never enough food, never enough drink, never enough grain. You literally had to build entire store cities for all of the extra grain. And it was an economic system, like most empires, built on the back of slavery. To get to the lavish, opulent lifestyle of a pharaoh or an Egypt, you need cheap labor, in that time, slavery, to work while you rest. And slaves don't get a Sabbath. Slaves devolve into a subhuman existence. They become, in the economy, a commodity to buy and to sell. They only have value in what they produce. They work all day, every day, until they die. Rest is what comes when you are set free by God. Not just from slavery, 
but from the socioeconomic system of an Egypt that is in turn legitimized by the false gods of empire. That is what the Exodus story is about. It's really easy to allegorize it and to take all of the teeth out of its bite. But the Exodus story, which is the paradigm of salvation all the way into the New Testament, is about freedom from slavery to a socioeconomic system that is justified by the false gods of empire. So the command is to remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Not you are, you were. It's more than just remember where you came from and how good you have it now. It's one, remember that you're not slaves anymore. You're not in Egypt. You live in a new kingdom under a new king. There's no quota. There's no taskmaster to beat you if you don't work hard enough. There's no supply cities in need of you. You are free. Secondly, it's to remember that you're not slave drivers. The tendency in history is brutal for the oppressed to so often become the oppressor. We could tell that story in every century of human history from our current one back to the dawn of human history. This is the pattern of humanity. Hence the commands about how the Hebrews are to treat their male or female servant, their animals, the foreigner or the immigrant. Israel used to be all of that. Israel used to be the servant, used to be the immigrant. Now they are the dominant society. This was social justice, we'll talk about this in a bit, that was millennia ahead of its time. All are to experience the Sabbath, not just the rich, not just Pharaoh and his friends, not just the powerful, even the animals and even the planet itself. And third, we are to remember, or they were to remember, that they are the image bearers of God. Sabbath is a weekly reminder of Israel's identity. It was a statement to Israel itself and to the watching world that they were different. They were not the same as culture at large. In fact, there's a saying that Israel kept the Sabbath and the Sabbath kept Israel. Whatever you think about the modern state of Israel at a political or a moral level, we all hopefully agree that it is a miracle. There's not one other example of an ethnic group surviving for nearly two millennia with a culture intact and no land, no government, none of it, without getting assimilated into the host culture. One of the reasons for that, experts point to, at the top of the list is the practice of Sabbath. Of course, under Jewish law, too much walking was considered work, and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, which meant the entire community, even post-automobile, had to live within a short walk of the synagogue, which meant that in every city, the entire community had to live in the same neighborhood. In our city, where do Orthodox Jews live? Either in the Alphabet District or in the Hillsdale neighborhood. Like, you want to have an experience of a community that has been practicing Sabbath for three and a half millennia and has it down, just drive through Hillsdale on a Saturday morning. Just watch these families walking to synagogue together. For millennia, this practice has kept the community intact. Can you imagine if we all had to live within a quarter mile of this building? What that would be like for our communal life together. When Israel first went into exile, it was Sabbath for Daniel and his friends and many others that kept them from getting sucked into the next empire, that of Babylon. And it's done the same for Israel and often for the church in all the empires up until the Third Reich. The Sabbath tells a subversive story to that of the empire, be it Egypt or Babylon or Nazi Germany or our own. 
A story that says, no matter what other people do to you or to us, we are image bearers of God. We're not slaves, we're not subhuman. We are made in the image of God. We are who we are loved by, and we were created for a rhythm of work and rest. This is the subversive story that keeps the people of God from getting sucked into a secular or a pagan host culture. Sabbath was, for ancient Israel, and still is, a line in the sand, a way of saying we will never go back. We'll never go back to Egypt. We will never become Egypt ourselves. We will live, and all those with us will live free. And I would argue that we need this practice. We need this line in the sand more now than ever before because Pharaoh is alive and well, and so is his system. And the bad news is, guess who it is today? Us. Like it or not, the global economic system, of which America is the driving engine, at least for a few more years, is set up very similar to Egypt's, like a pyramid. Think of our $1 bill, which is as old as our nation. On the back is the great seal, which is what? What is it? What's the image? A pyramid. Roman numerals at the bottom that add up to 1776, the year of the Declaration. 13 levels for the 13 colonies. But notice, there's a break between colony 13 and the all-seeing eye. And that is to symbolize more. The founding fathers put that in there to symbolize we're not done yet. We have an entire continent to devour. The pyramid has always been the symbol of empire. Those of you who work in finance recognize this next slide. It's what economists call the global wealth pyramid. Notice at the bottom is 70.1% of humanity, the vast bulk of our world. At the top is a tiny fraction of humanity. Now, you do the math and plot yourself in there. Most of us are at least, if you're in this room, the odds are very likely that you're at least in the top half, at least in the top 30%, if not in the top 10 or even more. That's the tricky thing about Egypt. It's horrific if you're a slave, but it's really not half bad if you're an Egyptian. And the people at the bottom are the people who often make our shoes, our T-shirts, our iPhones. This is in no name of guilt trip, but it's easy to have like, an awareness month around human trafficking in the world and post something on Instagram to virtue signal that you're gonna end it and you're against slavery. But often our homes are full of things from Amazon.com that were made, if not with full-on human trafficking, at least with full-on injustice. The dark underbellies, we wanna believe that slavery is done. It's not, the estimate is that there's 28 million slaves in the world today. That's depending on who you read, twice as many as were ever trafficked in the transatlantic slave trade in the world today. Many of them involved in fields that are growing the cotton that become the t-shirts that we wear on a Thursday afternoon. And that's not to guilt trip any of us. It's to realize this is not a thing from the distant past. This is a world we live in today. It's almost like the Bible is relevant for like humanity as a whole. It's almost like it tells a story that just never ends. Egypt never really goes away. You have to remember, if you're new to the Bible, that Egypt is archetypal. I mean, there was a historical Egypt that the Hebrews were in slavery to, but in all the biblical writings, it is an archetype. Same of Babylon later. These were historical nations, but the way that they are written up in the library of Scripture, it's blatant that they stand for all of the empires down through history. 
That's why in Revelation, if you've ever read the last book of the Bible, which some church traditions you read every single week, other traditions like ours, we just pretend like it's not there, um, which is just another <laughs> end of the spectrum. We need to correct that someday. Um, but often, you know, I have like this emotional trigger there for me and my church experience of my childhood that I need to still work through. But often, you know, there is a tradition where people read Revelation as like this map of the end times. And they will literally, I grew up in this tradition, where they will literally read the news every morning and plot it onto some paragraph in Revelation. And so Babylon becomes like, I remember when the Iraq war hit, everybody started to freak out because there's three chapters in Revelation about Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. And everybody was like, Saddam Hussein, is he Nimrod? And is it going to rise from the dead? And there's still no Babylon left in Iraq. And there's some other things there as well, but we have to remember is that is missing the point. In Revelation, Babylon is a global economic system of more that is built off injustice. It's not a literal historical nation state. First century readers of Revelation would have thought of the Roman Empire, right? That's why it was labeled Babylon, because you could like critique the empire without like, like getting in trouble in court. You're like, I said Babylon, not Rome. You know what I mean? I said Nimrod, not Nero, or whatever, but everybody knows exactly what you mean. We should read it and think of America, or think of China, or think of the internet. And I'm like, I'm not into that. I'm, well, the internet. Or think of free, the free market. It's all Babylon. We live in Babylon, or Egypt, or the Roman Empire, whatever you want to call it. We live in empire, and it's not just an economic system. It's a form of spirituality. I mean, look at politics right now. It's not politics anymore. It's religion. And in my opinion, both of them, the right and the left, are bad religions. These are not good religions. These are not religions that lead to love and joy and peace and community and justice and human flourishing. These are ideologies that have become idols, that have become de facto gods that legitimize whichever version of empire people prefer. We live, my point is not to slam our country. I would rather live here than anywhere else except for Australia. My point is, which by the way, oh my goodness, um, moving on. My point is not to slam our nation, for which I'm honestly grateful. One of the first things I thank God for every morning is that I wake up, I'm warm, I'm dry, and I'm safe. What a gift. I say that because we live in a culture of restlessness, just like ancient Egypt. This culture of an unquenchable, insatiable lust for more. Here in the US, we work more than ever before. As we said last week, Americans work more hours than any other nation in the world. In the 1960s, you know, it's fun to nerd out on this stuff, when technology was on the rise, um, everybody, like all the futurists and social theorists, and this was really important because it has to do with econ economy and politics, were all like that the theory was that by now, in fact, they said by the 80s or 90s, we would all kind of work three or four hours a week, and then Jetson's maid, whatever her name was, would take care of everything else for it. It was the Jetson's. That was like the vision of the future. There's a famous Senate subcommittee under Nixon that predicted by 1988, the average American would be working 20 hours a week, and the main problem in America would be too much leisure. Yeah, I wish that was our problem right now. In fact, leisure is down. I read one study that said 37% since the 60s. Part of the reason for that, when economists tell the story, is that Americans chose more money over more time. Uh, right now, I'm taking a Coursera course from Lori Santos of Yale on her positive psychology thing, 
And she has this great thing about just, you know, studies of happy people across the world. And she said that most people spend time to get money. Happy people spend money to get time. But that's the countercultural alternative, in particular for middle class and up. But part of the reason is just that so-called labor-saving devices have made our job something that many of us carry around with us in our pocket or our purse. I remember like back in the day, I used to have to go to the office to work. Now all I have to do is like sleep with my phone next to me and I'm like on call all the time. I don't, but that's all I have to do. And I'm no Luddite. Technology does all sorts of good in the world, but every generation has its blind spots and very much believe that digital addiction is one of ours. We have a practice coming up in the week ahead, and one of the things we're going to ask you to do is this crazy thing, all right? So you take your phone, whatever you prefer, and you, if you hold down the button on the right and the left at the same time, you have to hold it down for a couple seconds, it does this, and you actually, most of you just do this to reset it when it's glitchy, there's actually an alternative reason it's here. And what you can do is you just slide to the right. Look at that, you guys. There's, and then you put it away, and you're done. I dare you to do that. I dare you to do it for an entire Sabbath and not end writhing on the floor with withdrawal symptoms at the end. <laughs> then tell me that you're not addicted to your phone, right? My point is not to slam technology, just we work more than ever before, we have more than ever before. We all know the stats on this, again, no guilt, 4% of the, Amer of the world's population, but we're 22% of the world's economy. They say it would take, depending on who you read, six, I'm sorry, four to six Earths to sustain the global population consuming at the level that Americans do. For all the talk about the disappearing middle class, which is a thing, since 1950, the per capita income of Americans has tripled. After World War II, there was the cultural shift from Americans as workers who contribute to our society to consumers. Most conservative estimates say that we spend twice as much on consumer goods as we did in the 40s and 50s. Others put the number at 10 times as much. The stats on storage units, you've all read that, are crazy. In the US, there are 2.3 billion feet of self-storage space. That's 7.3 square feet for every person in our nation. We could literally house all of America in our freaking storage units. <laughs> My point is, Pharaoh is alive and well. His system is alive. It never really goes away. We work more than ever before, we have more than ever before, but in spite of that, we're unhappier than ever before. Sociologists all tell the story that happiness levels have been in decline in the US since the 1950s, which was its peak, which is right when Sabbath, interesting, could be coincidence, began to decline and materialism began to ratchet up. Now we spend $250 billion a year on antidepressants, second highest volume drug in our nation but yet nearly 45,000 people committed suicide last year. It's the lead, second leading cause of death for teenagers and 20-somethings. Mental illness, as many of you know, this is not talked about very much. It's exploding right now, particular bipolar, schizophrenia, staggering amount. I read a survey last week that said 39%, it was a legit survey, 39% of Americans say they are more anxious than they were a year ago. And anxiety, psychologists tell us, is the canary in the coal mine. It's the sign that something in the system of your life is out of whack and you need to fix it now before it's trouble. 
Now, of course, rising levels of unhappiness in America is a very complex story. There's no one, you know, root cause of it. It has to do with secularism and the decline of community and transience and politics. There's all sorts of reasons for that. But in our hyper-materialistic culture, knowing that we're not all on the same page, we all come here from different places, still I have to say it again and again, there is more to life than accomplishment and accumulation. So to sum up, we work more than ever before, we have more than ever before, and we're still not all that happy as a nation. It's Egypt all over again. And it is so easy, listen carefully, just to get sucked into the empire. This is, think back to our category of the world last month. It's so easy to just acclimate to the normal of our society, even if normal is cray-cray, and to just assimilate into a host culture with a radically different set of values than that of Jesus and his kingdom. It's so easy just to feel powerless before it, to feel like you just have to work those extra hours in order to make it in your career. Like you just have to get ahead on email on Sunday. You just have to reach a certain standard of living to be happy. You have to say yes to every single promotion and climb the ladder. You have to own X number of shoes or X number of jeans or X number of outfits. 31 on average, by the way, for an American. The parents who think they just have to give their teenager a phone or they have to give them shopping money, or they have to miss church for months at a time to catch up on soccer games for a third grader, whatever it is. My point is, again, not guilt and shame. It's just to say it's easy to just get sucked in and to feel powerless and to feel like everybody's doing it. As my grandma used to say, just because everybody's doing it, don't make it smart, right? Some grandma wisdom right there. Like, it's so easy just to get sucked into the empire. But Sabbath, my friends, is an act of resistance. It is a line in the sand. It is a shot across the bow. It is an act of insurgency. It is a rebellion against Egypt and its system. It is a way of, in love, saying enough. Enough work. Work is a good thing. It matters to God and to us, but it's not the thing. It isn't the be-all, end-all of our existence. There is more to life than production. There is pleasure, and we are not what we do. We are who we are loved by. Sabbath is a way to break our addiction, and that's what it is for not everybody in the room, but for many of us, myself included, to accomplishment. This is especially hard for those of you that are workaholic or type A or you love your career or you're just a doer or what sometimes for you, Sabbath in particular, at first you will come, trust me, you will come to love it. At first, you will feel like a drug addict in withdrawals because there's an addiction to accomplishment but also to accumulation. It's a way to say enough stuff. Again, stuff isn't bad. I'm not like... I'm not Gnostic. I don't think that it's evil to have a nice pair of shoes or to enjoy good coffee. If it is, I am in full-on sin, right? Um, but do we really need more of it? Do you really need another pair of shoes? Do you really need another Lego set? Do you really need to read another book? Like this one, like the Spirit brought to mind through my friend Neil here that I like have an addiction right now to reading, and it's actually unhealthy for my soul. I was like bragging about how many books I read, and then Neil was like, you know, actually, I'm not sure that's good for your soul. <laughs> We're like doing the spiritual discipline of confession of sin a few nights ago, and I was like wrecked, and dang it, Neil, I felt so guilty when I was reading yesterday, <laughs> but I was still reading. Um, anyway, 
<laughs> but I cut down. I took some time to just sit on the bed and just want to read. Um, <laughs> but my point is, do we really need that? Sabbath is a way to break our addiction. And again, for many of us, that's exactly what it is, to accumulation. One of the, out of the Sabbath command here in Deuteronomy come the later commands in the New Testament to not buy and sell on the Sabbath. I just want to show you one. Um, it's really, I think it's fascinating. Turn to Nehemiah with me, chapter 13. Um, if you're new to the Bible, just go to the right. It's before the wisdom literature, so if you get to Psalms, you have gone too far. Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, it's interesting. In the Torah, there's no command to, like, not go shopping on the Sabbath. But remember, um, this is a society before kind of digital currency, and so shopping at the time was really more like trade, which meant it was very connected, even more than ours is today, to work, although it still is in many ways for us today. And so a best practice that came out of the Sabbath command to not work on the Sabbath was basically that all shopping was against the law in Jewish society. Here's one fascinating example. Take a look with me with Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. Nehemiah writes this. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, making wine, working, and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of other loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, Therefore, I warn them against selling food on that day. Now, people from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Ah, so this is the key. Tyre, non-Jewish, pagan nation, up to the north on the coast. Very wealthy, very hedonistic society, if you know about ancient Tyre. So they had been influencing the Hebrew practice of Sabbath and bringing in shopping and fish and wine and all sorts of delicacy on the Sabbath. Now, 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah. The elites were in on this. And I said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? To desecrate is the opposite of to make holy. So remember the Sabbath command is to sanctify or to make holy the day, to treat it not just like another ordinary day or a day off or you know Sunday afternoon to watch football or whatever, but to treat it as a holy day or a holiday. The opposite is to desecrate it, just to trample on over it, treat it like any other day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that God brought all this calamity on us, on the city? If you know Israel, that the uh, neglect of Sabbath was one of the reasons they were left in exile. Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Now I love this. Nehemiah is my kind of guy. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. This is why I'm not in politics. Um, I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Sometimes you have to station your men at the gates. My armed guards, I stick them out in front of my house every single Sabbath. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. Like, he's the governor. He's a politician, right? From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy me to me according to your great love. 
Now, whatever you think about this story, this is where, for example, in the US, the blue laws later came from. Those of us that are millennials, we don't even really know what that is. Blue laws were on the books until the 90s in many states that made it illegal to open a shop on the Sabbath, on Sundays, or in some states it was you know, open before 1 p.m. or 3 p.m. or certain, in certain states you still can't buy liquor on the Sabbath or cars, just certain things that were just off limits. I love that, like no liquor and no cars. You know, it's fantastic. Um, and this is obviously not a thing anymore in our state, but we kind of have self-enforced blue laws at the Comer House, and honestly, we find it so life-giving. We just practice this. Again, no legalism, just as a best practice. No buying and no selling on the Sabbath. In fact, we do our best to not even talk about anything that we want. So it's regularly on the Sabbath, you'll hear one of the five of us like stop a conversation and just, sometimes it'll be our kids and say, ah, oh, let, let's just talk about that after the Sabbath. We have like fun little rules like no magazine reading on the Sabbath, no window shopping, nothing that would spark in us a desire for what we don't have rather than delight in what we do. And this for us is not legalism, honest to God. And this is so tragic that sometimes the older generation that grew up under the blue laws, all they know about the Sabbath is what you're not allowed to do. For us, this is a practice to index our heart away from slavery to the greed and discontentment and restlessness of our culture and into the freedom of gratitude and contentment and restfulness of the kingdom. How many of you want the latter? Sabbath is a practice to that end. Accomplishment and accumulation aren't evil. In fact, they can even be good, but there is a limit. At some point, you just have to say, enough, no more. I don't have to work more. I don't have to move up in the company. I don't need another bay in my garage or another bicycle or wherever you're at. I don't need another pair of shoes. I don't need another night out. I don't need to get the perfect grade. I don't need to earn my father's love. That's not where my self-worth comes from. I don't need another stamp on my passport. I don't need to be younger or more beautiful or have flatter abs, so that would sure be nice. I do not need to have my kids and ballet or soccer or taekwondo all year long or at all. I don't need to make everybody happy. I don't need to be liked by everybody. I don't even need to get everything I want to be happy. Pharaoh's dead. He's at the bottom of the Red Sea, if you know the story. Egypt is in the past. The only slave drivers are the one in my head and outside my window. We are free. We live in a different kingdom under a different king. Sabbath is not only an act of resistance against Pharaoh and his system, but an act of alignment with Yahweh and his. It's not just for us. It is for others. Our friend AJ calls the Sabbath scheduled social justice. This command was millennia ahead of its time. If you look again at verse 14, if you still have Deuteronomy open, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male nor your female servants, not even your animals, all of them are to rest as you do, end quote. That last line that a lot of us skip over was and honestly still is radical. Absolute equality of rest. Walter Brueggemann, whose um, short little book on the Sabbath inspired this teaching, in his commentary on the Deuteronomy text, writes this, not all are equal in production. Some perform much more effectively than others. Not all are equal in consumption. Some have greater access to consumer goods. In a society defined by production and consumption, there are huge gradations of performance and therefore of worth and significance. 
in such a social system, everyone is coerced to perform better, produce more, consume more, be a good shopper. Such valuing, of course, creates haves and have-nots, significant and insignificant, rich and poor, people with access and people denied access, but Sabbath breaks the pattern of coercion. All are like you, equal. Equal work, equal value, equal access, equal rest. Can you imagine what would happen if all commerce in Portland and online were to shut down one full day a week? If 24-7 became 24-6? If restaurants were all closed today? If websites were all shut down? If all workers from the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company to a farm worker in rural India growing cotton, all had a day to rest, to be with loved ones, with family, to delight, to remember who they are as image bearers of God. Can you imagine what that would do, not only to our soul, but to our society? Now, is that a pipe dream? Absolutely, heck yes. But we are to be the people, not who get sucked in, but who stand for an alternative story. Sometimes it's as simple as asking, in what ways is my lifestyle, or my closet, or even my practice of Sabbath, forcing other people to work in ways that do not have rest and justice. And it might look like you begin to take a day to fight the system, a day to, instead of shop, celebrate, delight in the simple pleasures of what you have. All that to say, Sabbath is an act of resistance, a prophetic act over against the accomplishment and accumulation of our society. Last fall, we said that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. They are how we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sabbath is a weapon in the fight, not just for the health of our soul, but for the justice of our society. It is a way that we say no to Pharaoh and his Egypt and yes to Jesus and his kingdom. On that note, our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org slash Sabbath. The idea is very simple, that as you add to your Sabbath week over week, you just practice, if you want, this is all voluntary, it's all invitation, if you want, just refrain for a day and don't buy anything. More than that, focus the attention of your heart not on what you want or even on what you need, but rather on what you have and receive it as gift in your life. Focus on the things that money can't buy, such as family and friends or the simple pleasures of watching the sunrise in the morning or a walk through the park. We have a few exercises to that end for gratitude. And if this sounds like legalism to you, please, you are not hearing my heart, and I apologize for that. It fe in my experience, it feels like discipline followed by freedom. And all you have to do is step into a day. To end, you know, we said last week that Sabbath isn't just a day, it's a spirit of restfulness that we live into all week long, and it's just a practice to cultivate that spirit 24-7. And, uh, you know, I love, there's a line from Walter Brueggemann in that book that I just love where he writes that people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. And that's why, and it's so true in my experience, like Sabbath will mess with you. If you don't want Jesus to mess with your life and wake you, make you way more free, then don't practice Sabbath. 
If you want to stay in slavery to greed and want and workaholism and identity based on your performance, feel free, like just, just keep doing what you do. If you want to be free, man, careful. Sabbath will mess with you, not just one day a week, but seven days a week. That's why Sabbath is on day seven, not on day two or three or four, because it is not a break in the middle of the week to just catch your breath and then get back to the really important stuff of production and performance. It is instead the climax. It is what the entire week is leading up to. It's what you anticipate on days three and four and five and six and what you live off the joy of on days one and two and three. When you Sabbath well, you will live well, and so will those in orbit of your life all week long. Let's stand together and pray.